The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Is a merger between German banking giants Deutsche and Commerce a smart idea? Volkswagen's boss has to deal with another emissions scandal, this time from his own mouth. And is a Chinese housing unicorn getting too clever in how it finances rent? Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry, and later in the programme, we'll hand over to our colleagues in Asia to explain how Dan Kerr has become a mover and shaker in Chinese real estate. We start, though, with one of the worst-kept secrets in European financial markets. Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank Bank are discussing a merger. The two lenders confirmed over the weekend that they're in talks more than a week after Reuters first reported it, and after months, if not years, of speculation. Marrying rival banks often brings big benefits and returns to shareholders, usually by laying off thousands of employees and cutting other costs. But these once formidable institutions are now in such a beleaguered state that even throwing them together might not help. Or so says our European banking columnist Christopher Thompson, who joins us from London. Chris, nice to have you on the show again. Good to be here. Thank you. So, Chris, as I said, years of speculation and denials about this. Um, What's brought Deutsche Commerce to this point now? Well, one suspects desperation apart from anything else, <laughs> at least at least on Deutsche Bank's part. Um, so Deutsche Bank thinks that Comets Bank is in play and they have been putting forward a line that if they don't do something about it now, i.e. propose a takeover offer, then a rival European interloper, a nasty foreigner in other words, such as BNP Paribas or Italy's Unicredit, may come along and decide to swipe up Comets Bank, thus putting Deutsche Bank in an even weaker position than it already is on its home turf. Oh, so this sounds fantastic. So at the, the heart of Europe and the heart of the European Union, pushing for greater integration itself from Berlin, we have the biggest bank of the country basically trying to push the other way and say, we shouldn't let foreign banks come in and take our other banks. Well, it's a useful line. It certainly plays well with the German regulator. And the German finance minister, Olaf Scholz, is quite keen on creating a so-called German national banking champion. The problem is, is that both banks have a very low return on tangible equity. In other words, they're not very profitable at all. So putting together two bad banks uh, may just create a very bent German banking champion and certainly not the one that the German government envisages. I mean, to be fair, though, I mean, Deutsche Bank is already, all right, putting the, aside, the, the returns aside for a second, Deutsche Bank already accounts for, you know, a good fifth of German banking assets itself, doesn't it? It's not as if it's a small bank. No, it's, well, it's, um, I, I think, to get, I mean, it depends how you chop up their balance sheet. They don't, uh, they don't kind of give you, they've always both been quite shy as to how much of the German banking market that they uh-huh. have. But but there's there's kind of uh, there's there's an idea that if you put them both together you'd have something like close to 20% between 15 and 20% of the German banking market right. which would far far outweigh the next biggest competitor. So in a very fragmented market indeed in Europe's arguably Europe's most fragmented and also as a result least profitable banking market you would suddenly create something with a bit of pricing power. Yes, I mean, if we just step back a bit, let's just go over the German banking system overall. As I understand it, there are now about 1,800 um, banks and credit unions overall. And that's that's down a fair bit over the past 20 years, but still very high compared to most of the rest of Europe, I think. 
It is. And, 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 and the majority of those, I think it's fair to say, are not incentivized to make a profit for shareholders. They're kind right. of publicly subsidized or they're cooperatives and so forth. So it's very difficult for a kind of publicly listed banking entity, which is incentivized to make a profit for shareholders, uh, uh, you know, to, to make a profit, A, because they have no pricing power and B, because their competitors are in large part uh, kind of there. Uh, for the benefit of their customers rather than right. than than purely the benefit of their of their shareholders putting these two together though I mean there are a lot of costs that the, the two could cut out assuming of course they can get rid of as many staff as they'd like considering how employee friendly the rules generally are in Europe and Germany especially but and how much how much could they do you think cut I mean if I look at a US bank that the, the US banks that are in the same market as each other they can probably cut 30 percent of at least the targets costs right Right, right. That's it. Yeah, and 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 I think the thinking is is broadly similar with Comets Bank. I mean, some people have said that they could go for a higher portion of of cost cuts at at the target at Comets Bank, uh, closer to forty percent, uh, which is similar to what Comets Bank uh, achieved when it took over Dresdner Bank some while right. ago. That was another in market uh, bit of consolidation. So if you're looking at forty percent, um, you're looking at close enough to three billion euros. Um, but of course, Deutsche is a much, much larger institution. So even yeah. if you kind of accept those cost cuts, um, you know, returns go up from the absolutely abominable to the merely mediocre. Yeah, which is amazing, really. If you think if we do, if we put our sort of financial hats on here, well, I won't bore everyone with the logic. But those three billion dollars, if you after you tax them and, and whatever, they, they are currently worth. They would currently be worth the shareholders. Somewhere north of 20 billion euros, I would think. So you'd be looking at, you know, almost the combined market caps of the two companies, which is you'd think would be a brilliant thing to do, right? I mean, okay, again, they'll be losing a lot of staff, but from a shareholder return perspective, you think if that's worth more than the two companies combined, almost as much, that's that ought to be good. But you're saying the returns are going to be pretty desperately bad still. Well, it's partly a function of the fact that the shares, the share price of both banks have been in the toilet for a very long time. So they trade at fractions of their book value. So you could merely kind of double those fractions and they'd still trade at fractions of their book value, but 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 proportionately quite a lot higher than what they do at the moment. Yeah. So 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 there is that argument. But of course, it's very risky. At mm. the end of the day, you're creating a bank uh, which would have nearly two trillion in assets. And that's, you know, Comets Bank has spent the last decade basically getting rid of its kind of complex investment bank slash trading right. unit and it would be shackling itself to what is Europe's largest trading unit uh, certainly by assets uh, with a whole host of kind of uh, difficult potentially risky and certainly hard to value assets yeah I mean the the, the investment banking side of these institutions is is, is an, another big wrinkle right so okay maybe not so much Commerce bank anymore it, it tried and and basically pulled out from what I can tell of, of most uh, apart from its core business of investment banking uh, in Germany. Um, but, you know, Deutsche Bank spent 20, 25 years trying to build this thing up. And you know, just this week we saw in, in, in the U.S. press a story about its long-term association with uh, President Donald Trump. And then, you know, some amazing things came out about, about the bank itself. They were saying at one point, you know, this is even in 2012, 2013. You know, aside from Trump's history of defaults, he was an attractive borrower, they thought. So they lent him more money. I mean, just think, you know, this is an investment bank that has just basically failed to get enough of the standards there to be able to you know, become a forceful player 
and be able to earn the kind of returns that they were looking for they got into this to try and outweigh the low returns you were talking about in retail business in Germany. And that's right. They've been they've been desperate to kind of improve their US investment bank, which is a very large part of their risk-weighted assets mm. for a very long time now. And that may or may not have, we certainly don't know uh, the ins and outs of the relationship with Trump, but it may or may not have led to, you know, risky moves in trying to capture uh, various bits of revenue from questionable uh, borrowers uh, right. such as Mr. Trump. But I mean, what we do know is that it hasn't been profitable for a very long time and neither yeah. has the investment bank uh, uh, as a whole. So, you know, plenty of gremlins, certainly from the from the US looking into Deutsche Bank's relationship with Trump uh, could yet come out. And, and again, you know, one of the questions if you are a Comets Bank shareholder is, yes, I know I'm, I don't hold shares in a bank which is particularly profitable, but we do, at least we don't have the problems that Deutsche Bank has, not yeah. least in the US. Now, speaking of shareholders, the German government is a 15% owner of Comets Bank. What's the sense of what Berlin wants out of this? So Berlin is perceived to want, as, as I mentioned earlier, to create this kind of national banking champion to, to try and shore up profitability in the German market. I mean, you mentioned that about the regulator. Is that the same you think in the halls of power um, in the Reichstag? Yes, I mean, I think I think there's I think there's there's kind of sympathy for creating uh, a, a kind of European banking champion by by putting these two things together. But also, I think there's sympathy for the fact that you know Deutsche's kind of viability is is questioned perennially, and and you can see that in the much higher funding costs it pays relative mm. to peers. Uh, uh, on its debt. So one of the massive benefits that it would get, that Deutsche would get from this deal, is that Comets Bank would bring a whole load of deposits over, uh, and that would, you know, uh, almost automatically lower um, right. uh, Deutsche's cost of funding. You would also have the German government as a shareholder in the combined entity. Ergo, there would be a more explicit state-backed guarantee, which should lower its cost of funds further. Right. Okay. Um, and. Um... What about other players? And you mentioned a couple at the beginning. All of the players I think we've been looking at, whether it's ING, Unicredit, which already owns Hupo Vereinsbank uh, in Germany, and you know, BNP, they're all far bigger by market cap. Do you think they're going to jump in, as, as Deutsche Bank seems to be, be, be saying? And, and should they jump in? Well, I mean, there's an argument as to, as to, as to whether they will. I mean... They're both both BMP, uh, which has had very difficult 2018 results. They basically publicly ruled out any large scale M&A and basically right. said, you know, we have to get our own house in order first before we contemplate big acquisitions, especially abroad. Um, Unicredit's basically the same thing. Uh, they I think they've ruled out any large scale M&A and they're going through their own, you know, multi-year painful restructuring at the moment. Um, but more to the point you know, cross-border M&A doesn't really work for European banks at the moment because you can't right. move deposits across national borders and there's right. no capital markets union. So until that stuff occurs, and it's not going to occur anytime soon, um, there really aren't the kind of, uh, you know, prospects for increased revenue that you might get from, say, moving German deposits, you know, using German deposits to fund lending in Italy. Until you get those kind of synergies... Um, it's very hard how you could justify uh, a, a cross-border deal. Right, Chris Thompson, thanks very much for talking us through that. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. OK, we stay with uh, our London colleagues now to talk about 
Herbert Diess, the chief executive of Volkswagen, who a few days ago opened his mouth and squarely shoved his foot in it. To discuss what happened, we have Liam Proud on the line from London. Hi, Liam. How are you doing? Hi, Anthony. I'm not bad. How are you? Yeah, not bad, thanks. So, I'm not really sure how to, how to start this one, Liam. I mean, I was looking in the archive and I saw the word Nazi show up. It, not at all between 2004-2017. We've seen it a few times since. But we're now we're talking about it in respect to Volkswagen, which is not a good thing. This, co- this company was basically created during the Nazi era. And now we've got Dies reminiscing almost. Tell us what's going yeah. on. There's no, there's no easy way into it, basically. It's, it's just a, an absolutely enormous lapse of judgment from, from the Volkswagen CEO. Essentially, it was the, the company's capital markets day, which is you know, when, the, when the management sit investors down and explain what the strategy is for the future. Now, as far as we can make out, he was trying to make a financial point about having high profit margins and how that gives you a, uh, some room for manoeuvre. Now, the, right. the acronym that we use is EBIT, um, E-B-I-T, for earnings before interest and taxes. Now, what he said was EBIT macht frei, which obviously invokes the, 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 the well-known phrase Arbeit macht frei, which was you know, embossed on the gates of, of several Nazi concentration camps. Um, now, this, you know, you, do, you don't joke about the Holocaust. Yeah, especially if you're German. And especially if you're the, the VW CEO. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he's running a company now which was, fa- you know, to all intents and purposes, founded by the Nazi party in the late 1930s. Um, and, and the very early days of production, it was heavily reliant on, on essentially slave labor from the concentration yeah. camps. So well, the reaction from this was, was pretty immediate. He apologized. But how on earth can, can a CEO in Germany, especially at VW, say this and, and still be in his job? Was it, have there been calls for him to be ousted? It's, it's, it's actually quite puzzling. I mean, I think he's, he's relatively new. He only came in last year. Um, and it's, it's a very difficult kind of pivotal moment for VW at the moment. There's this big battle going on in the boardroom between the, the controlling Porsche Pietsch family, um, yeah. which sort of is seem to represent capital, and then there's the unions, which have about half of the supervisory board. Then there's also some Qataris and some politicians on the shareholder register. And Diace has, has kind of got the job to, to hold all this together. And he's trying to push through some, some, some maybe some spin-offs. They might list the truck business. Um, so I, I, think, I think probably the reason he's still there is that it's seen as he, they've had a lot of difficulty going on. The margins have been falling. The share price has been a complete right. mess. You can't also lose the CEO. Um, but I mean, it's... it's, it's Awful, awful judgment. I mean, this guy gets yeah. paid eight million euros a year or so to exercise good judgment. So, so Liam, I mean, where where do you rank this in terms of CEO gaps? We we, we see them obviously. It's not as if uh, you know CEOs are any more immune from being stupid than the rest of us. But you know, CEOs ought to be more in control of what they say. Where would you rank this in, in on the on the on the scale? I think this is right at the very top. I mean, some, 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 some of my favourite ones, which, which are funny, unlike this one, um, is Gerald Ratner, who was a UK jewellery boss, um, was once heard publicly saying that his products were total crap and that's why he could sell them um, for a relatively cheap price. On honesty is the best policy. You know, what can you say? Indeed, yeah. And, and other peaches, uh, uh, DS's German compatriot Thomas Ebelling, who used to run ProSiebenSat1, which is a big German broadcaster, he was asked by some shareholders and analysts, why aren't you worried about, about Netflix, the digital streaming company taking your customers? And he said, well, what you have to understand is that our customers are kind of, you know, they're, they're obese and slightly poor people. People. They're not the kind of people that would take a Netflix subscription. Oh, nice work. Yeah, so that's that's a kind of you know 
not, not particularly tone deaf uh, remark um, and is not very good look to be showing disdain for your customers publicly. But, but this, this one by Deace combines joking about you know one of the, the few topics which should just be totally off the table to joke about yeah. and doing so with this history which he needs to, you know, he's, he's recognized since. We have a special responsibility in regard to, to this dark period of German history. Bit late saying it now. In, indeed, and, and worse, he seemed to have thought about it. I mean, it, it wasn't a kind of off-the-cuff thing that pops into your head. It, it, it seemed like he was trying to say a serious point, so he presumably thought to himself, well, this would be a funny thing to say, um, and it's not. Well, Liam, um, I'd say thanks for talking us through that. I'm not sure it's quite the right word. Uh, I'm grateful to you for, uh, for laying out just how bad this one ranks. Um, let's try and get you back on the show soon to talk about something a bit less, uh, a bit less distasteful. Thanks, Anthony. Speak soon. Now let's pass the mic over to our colleagues in Hong Kong, Pete Sweeney and Robin Mack. We're here today to talk about Dan Ke, an interesting little startup with an interesting finance model. Uh, the Chinese government, particularly Xi Jinping, has been trying to get more of the nation's massive unused housing inventory into the rental market, bring down the cost of living for people in major cities, particularly young college graduates who are unable to buy. Um, there's a bunch of companies piling into the space, but Danka seems particularly interesting because of the way it's funding it. Robin, what is Danka doing? So Danka um, is a very interesting, as you said, rental housing uh, startup. So it's, it's quite similar to WeWork in the United States. So it takes out long-term leases from uh, apartment owners, and then it renovates them into these dorm-like spaces and rents it out short-term, um, you know, in a unit averages around 2,500 RMB a month, so, you know, $375. Um, so it's not that much. Um, so it's a, you know, a WeWork co-working space approach uh, to living. And it's a unicorn, right? It just had a nice funding round. Yeah, so it raised um, about $500 million at a over two, uh, $2 billion valuation um, with uh, Ant Financial, which is Jack Ma's fintech empire, as well as Tiger Global. So it is attracting um, you know, some heavy hitters out there. Traditionally, renting in China has been problematic for a lot of reasons. I mean, landlords you know, have preferred to keep stuff off the market. For one thing, there's no property tax. For another thing, there's a lot of legal risk. It's difficult to get bad tenants out, so on and so forth. Um, and yet, like these companies are piling in, uh, but the margins are quite thin. What what does Ant Financial see in like being a landlord in like Beijing, where yields are like one point five percent? Yeah. So I mean, the the important thing to to remember is that you know similar to WeWork, Danka is not a landlord, so they are essentially a middleman. Um, so what they do is that they will rent out apartments that they don't own, slightly at maybe a higher margin because, you know, they're cutting these rooms up into dorm-like spaces. So, you know, in theory, you could sort of see they can charge a bit more for that. But what's interesting about Danke and some of its rivals do this as well is how they're funding themselves. Um, so in order to go out and find apartments to rent out long term and to renovate them, you need quite a lot of money up front. But, you know, if you're depending on, you know, monthly uh, rent payments, um, you know, averaging 2,500 RMB per person, then it's very difficult to get, you know, you're going to have a cash flow problem. So then what Danka does is that they will actually take out bank loans, but in the tenant's name. So instead of receiving monthly rental payments from each tenant, um, Danka gets one year rent up front, which is a bank loan. And then the tenants will just pay the bank 
banks directly on a monthly basis. And Danka keeps the cash. Why not just raise the cash from the equity market? Yeah, so they do that. You know, they're tapping VCs. They're uh, doing this bank loan thing. It's called rental loans. They're also issuing asset-backed securities as well. So it is a very uh, clever how are uh, mix <laughs> of funding sources for them. And it's worked so far because, you know, Danka is one of the largest now. They're in, you know, many, many cities. So they are expanding quite quickly. But, the, I mean, this seems to be like checking a bunch of red boxes for Beijing has been going after unusual financing practices, um, misuse of like upfront deposits in other segments. Um, I, you know, so, so Danka has taken this money in advance and using it for not rent stuff. They're going in. Well, I mean, so they, they say that, you know, they are partnering with, you know, reputable uh, financial institutions. Um, You know, they do due diligence. They sort of try to, you know, mitigate a lot of the risks of default. Um, but the bigger risk actually is not what happens if the tenant defaults, but it's what happens if Danke goes under for any reason. Um, so something similar quite happened in about t- uh, 2017 when, you know, a rival went bankrupt and it left a lot of tenants in debt. Banks were owed money, landlords were owed rent, and a bunch of college graduates had, you know, credit scores ruined, essentially. Yeah, well, I mean, and this is the sort of thing that regulators tend to hate, I guess, um, you know, and we've seen Beijing make regulatory changes like, say, towards P2P lenders and other other companies that started off quite well as far as investors are concerned and tanked. Do you see that the risk of a, yeah, a shift I mean, on I that think, front? Yeah, I think so. This is an area that, you know, regulators, they are starting to be aware um, of such practices and they are sort of stepping in slowly. But, you know, it's going to take some time for, you know, the regulations to come into effect and sort of you know, for Danke to adjust um, whatever they need to do in their business model. But for now, it seems to be <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the final thing is that the, the, the possibility of another revenue line. Um, you know, they're working with Ant. Presumably they can put in s- smart furniture, stuff like that. Like, uh, and, and I mean, is there a data play here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at a lot of these uh, dorm-like, uh, units that Danker runs out. It's actually quite uh, high tech and smart. So then, you know, all their locks are smart locks. So if tenants, say, are late for their monthly repayments, then, you know, the company can just lock you out and until you pay. And render you instantly <laughs> right. homeless. Yeah. Well, that's one way to get the rent. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us, Robin. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Robin Mack, Pete Sweeney, Liam Proud and Chris Thompson for coming on the show. And we extend our gratitude as always to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Ross Shoulder. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views from on iTunes as well as to our sister podcast, The Exchange. And please do share your opinions about our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.